Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. We're doing it. We're recording this time. Welcome back. <laughs> we are back another week. I think we're using 2020 as a, so. a, a verb, noun, adjective now, right? Yeah, I think we are. We just blame everything on 2020 and just hope for a better 2021. But we're really excited today because we have the Childhood Collective. We have Katie, Mallory, and Lori. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. We're excited to be here. Yay! So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the Childhood Collective? Yeah, so we started the Childhood Collective about a year and a half ago, and I think we all of us have experience working with neurodiverse kids, kids with ADHD, learning and language differences, anxiety, autism spectrum disorders, and we really saw families, you know, they get that diagnosis and then afterwards just feel really lost. They feel underprepared to know how to parent their kids. They often don't get a lot of resources and follow up. And we just saw a need there to really support parents on their journey after that diagnosis. And we also saw just a need for training, especially for kids with ADHD. Like parents, a lot of times weren't, they're getting a diagnosis from their pediatrician and they're not necessarily getting a lot of follow-up other than like Mm -hmm. medication options. And so really wanted to give parents through online courses, education about how to help their kids at home and help parent their kids and help them understand these diagnoses in a way that we really couldn't do like immediately after we're giving those diagnoses. So we just saw a huge need in that area. Oh, it's so important. And I think the parents that have ADHD themselves either have an easier time or a harder time helping raise their children because an easier time because they understand completely, right? They have the same type of inattentiveness or, you know, whatever. A harder time if they have a completely different type of ADHD or ADD. And so then they're like, I don't understand why, you know, this technique that I used back in the day doesn't work for you now. And obviously the parent that's never had a diagnosis is neurotypical. I was just saying this to a parent and to an IEP team yesterday. If you don't understand how this child brain works, like you're just going to label him as lazy. You're just going to label him as unmotivated and that is not what is happening it's just a different and it's so hard to explain to someone that just doesn't even want to try to understand yeah I was just talking to a family yesterday and they were like yeah you know my teacher had referred to my son as lazy and he's like anything but that ends up what happens is we like you know, say that they're lazy or they're not trying or they're not motivated when that's not the case because we don't understand how their brain works. And so we really want to provide that education so parents really truly understand why those behaviors are happening because otherwise it can be really confusing and frustrating. So why don't you go through and kind of talk a little bit about each of your backgrounds and how you ladies came together. I'm Mallory and I'm a child psychologist. 
And I first met Lori when we were working together at a small group practice. She was actually my supervisor for my postdoctoral residency. And so we worked together for several years. Katie came in at the tail end of my time with that group practice before I stopped working and became a stay-at-home mom. I have two young boys at home. So that's where I am right now. Now I'm trying to decide whether I'm a stay-at-home mom or a work-from-home mom. Right, yeah. But it seems like that's all the same. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's just all here, right? It's <laughs> not one or the other. So as I mentioned, I'm a child psychologist. My training is actually in school psychology, and this goes for Lori as well. So we both have experience working in the schools. So I think that's something that's unique about us in our practice and what we bring as well to the Childhood Collective is that we've had experiences on both sides of this. From the school's perspective, working with families and getting kids services in the schools and doing evaluations, but also from the other side, from the private practice side, doing private evaluations, but also serving families in the way of providing independent education evaluations and really advocating for the family from outside the school. So we both bring those two experiences to the table that I think is really unique and helpful for families. So. Yeah, and I'm Katie. I'm a speech-language pathologist, and as Mallory mentioned, I'm still at that same group practice, but I come in with, obviously, the speech and language side, so it's actually a bigger team of psychologists, and then what they decided is with doing these IEEs and these kind of more complex diagnostic evaluations, it would be really helpful to have someone like me who can be there to look at language skills, but also social language. That's a huge area of interest for me, not only for kids on the spectrum, but also kids with ADHD and how their executive functioning really impacts their social skills in a different way. And they actually need maybe a little bit of different support for that. So right now I'm doing mostly evaluations and then some treatment for speech and language, but my caseload over the years has become more specialized in the kind of kids that I really enjoy and really connect with. And so it really lends itself nicely to the Childhood Collective as well, because there's a lot of overlap there. And I think sometimes what happens is parents are getting certain advice or things like if you're just on Instagram looking at all these parenting experts and parenting bloggers, and sometimes it's a lot of it is wonderful advice, but some parents are coming to us saying, this just doesn't connect for my child. And that might be because there's something else going on, like with language or another diagnosis. And so we're able to kind of work as a team to give our different expertise to figure out, okay, what's the best way to support our neurodiverse population? Because they don't all fit into like the specific mold. Right. And I think that that is so telling of humans of wanting to categorize like ADHD. Okay. I'm on it. And we like, you know, look up everything and not really realizing that's just a starting point and you're kid may fit into certain areas, but yeah, there could be, you know, two or three other things that are actually impacting their learning, their speech, their forms of different communications. And I think that it's just so easy to hear the pediatrician say, okay, ADHD, and you think, okay, medication without really realizing there's, you know, a couple of different ways that can be approached. And so that's what I love about your collective insofar as having the different perspectives, right? You both, Lori and Mallory, were on the school side, and so you kind of know what it's like to be, you know, at an IEP team meeting and delivering that type of, okay, I'm, I'm seeing some inattention issues here. You know, you may want to go to your doctor for a formal diagnosis, but, you know, this and how hard that is, you know, a lot of parents, it feels 
awful. That might be the first time that they hear that and they just, you know, and then not having any support after that, I think is so detrimental (laughs) in the next step. So that's wonderful. I love that so much. I think you guys have like such a great background between the three of you that Mm -hmm. really helps give the information to the parents, not just like about the diagnosis, but the why, like you guys said, I think that's the most important, not just for the families, but anyone working with the child who maybe doesn't have a specialty with ADHD, you know, whether it's, you know, their speech therapist, whether they're occupational therapist, physical therapist, a tutor, soccer coach, anyone that's working, I think for the parents to be kind of armed with information that they can then share to the rest of the team, not just the school team, but you know, outside of school, it's so important because that why I think gives better information so that not everyone is jumping to those, they're just lazy or, okay, well, we just need to try medication. I think with anything, having that why helps everybody understand and then move forward. You can't really move forward and try strategies unless you understand kind of the root of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and what ends up happening is if you think that they're just lazy or unmotivated, you end up punishing or, you know, getting into a cycle that is really just not helpful for those kids and that parent-child relationship because of that and not understanding it. So, yeah, it can be hard. I think that being able to, we were just talking about this yesterday, feeling like you're not alone, I think is probably the biggest thing. And for anyone, but for children, especially when when we're talking about these diagnoses or, or, you know, them even knowing they're different. I think that self-awareness and I kind of wanted to talk about your like calmer home, like more connection approach that you have for your families. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I'd say that's a huge piece of what of the message that we're trying to send families is we have to prioritize connection over correction. And again, it comes back to that mindset shift that we already talked about is these are not bad kids. These kids don't want to be challenging. They don't want to struggle at school, don't want to be punished at home. They want to do well. And a big message that we're trying to send families is these kids do well if they can. And a lot of times it comes down to skill deficits and we have to be building their skills and we have to be teaching them in it. And parents play a huge role in that. And so to get out of this cycle of correction and feeling like your child isn't living up to your expectations, first you have to have reasonable expectations and that, you know, the education comes in there and really understanding what's going on in your child's brain. Then also shifting the cycle from feeling like you're stuck only noticing when your child isn't getting it right, isn't measuring up, isn't meeting your expectations, and then shifting your effort over to connecting with them by noticing the times that they are doing great, building up their skills so that we can really celebrate them, figuring out what those strengths are so we can really foster them and shift these interactions from, again, that constant cycle of correction to connecting with them, enjoying your time at home with them, spending more time one-on-one because you really understand them a lot better and you can find so much more joy in your interactions together. Yeah. And parenting that way is just not intuitive. You know, our natural way of doing things as parents is things are going along just fine and your kid does something wrong and you correct them, right? And with parenting our kids with ADHD, it's you have to parent in a way that just doesn't feel natural. It really is about prevention and setting them up for success 
and really having things in place and teaching them these things and catching them when they're doing the right things, which again, none of us do on a regular basis. It's just right. not natural. Right. And so, you know, it takes learning how to do that in a way to change that relationship at home and find more success with our kids and teaching them those skills. And no matter how many parenting books that are out there, you know, there really isn't a manual as to how to be a parent. (laughs) And I think that, you know, I'm sure as your kiddo gets older, I can see it with my 23 month old, you know, she can feed herself. She's like running away from us constantly. Like it's, you know, (laughs) like this little independent, like human, right? And you forget, like, she's not even two, right? So she's going to have, you know, that's where I'm assuming the terrible twos come in, right? They're frustrated because they can't respond to you, you know, and you're thinking, well, you can do all this other stuff, right? Like, I totally have those thoughts. And I think that with social media, it's that double-edged sword where you got to take it with a grain of salt because X, Y, and Z that's working for this Instagram mom, you know, and then this parenting expert is telling you, like, not to do that. It's just like, oh my gosh, one, just survive, like, parent. Two, you know, you have to find what works for you. And that might be a hundred things. And then it will take that one professional, like one of yourselves, that's like, oh, yeah, no, the type of inattention that your child has or the hyperactivity or the impulsivity that we sometimes see with our ADHD needs to be handled maybe this way, right? And then it's just like, oh, my goodness, that was the right key to turn. And I think that being able to provide that support, and I kind of want to talk more about like, you know, if a parent came to you, like what support would that like look like? Mm-hmm. I just jumped right there. I don't know where my the finishing my other thought was going, but it was more so in the long lines of, you know, is this kind of like an ongoing thing? Do parents kind of show up, you know, just for assessments? Like kind of talk about the types of supports that you guys provide to parents. Absolutely. So I think it's really important to clarify that we, well, Lori and I and Mallory previously, we do work in private practices, Mm -hmm. but we as the childhood collective Mm -hmm. don't provide like direct services. So I do see kids for therapy, but that's through my day job. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And Lori actually has her own practice here in the Scottsdale area. Um, So she does do that sort of more diagnostics and some treatment Mm -hmm. here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, But the childhood collective, we're not really providing providing well, we're not providing like treatment. Yeah. So it's not like here's your child's right. behavior plan. Right, right. Um, we've served, we've assessed, we've made a plan. You know, it's sort of different in terms of we're really there to provide education to the parents. And I think the key in our mind, and we've talked so much over the last year and a half about this distinction and really understanding what our role is, because I think there's still a huge need in terms of what we are able to provide is really reframing things for parents. And as you talked about with your 23 month old, just the expectations that are there. And I think um, a lot of the research shows that kids with ADHD can be delayed up to 30% developmentally compared to their peers. And so we might be looking at a nine-year-old who in some ways is acting like a six-year-old, but has really strong math skills or can do certain physical things or probably a lot of things the same or better than his peers. So parents are frustrated because they're like, ah, you go to a restaurant and my kid just loses it. And so we like to really spend a lot of time with that reframe and helping parents understand. And one of my things that I'm super passionate about is executive functioning and the why behind, again, those behaviors and that it's not behavior 
just to be naughty, but it's like this child is really struggling with inhibition and we all struggle with inhibition sometimes, but it's to what degree. And I think you made a really great point earlier about the parents who many, we hear it every day in our DMs and people responding to our blog, parents are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I had ADHD or dyslexia until my own child was tested. So these are parents that are struggling. Isn't that insane? Like to think like, you can go, you know, 30 some odd years and you yes. just think that that's how everybody's brain is like, oh my gosh, that must be so enlightening for so many. It is. It can be. Absolutely. And I think it's almost like the parents in many ways are on their own journey too, figuring out when you mentioned like what works for them and yeah. maybe they had some really good coping skills. Most likely they didn't and they didn't have, they didn't know why this was happening. And then in terms of from the executive functioning perspective, I, in my, in practice, and if I'm seeing a child therapeutically, I'm looking at what are those major breakdowns. And then we always want the intervention to try to happen at the point of performance. So if this child is always losing things, we can talk about it in my office, but it's not going to be as effective as helping the parent. Okay. Let's make a basket. That's where the things go. We're going to practice that. We're going to reward that every time he puts his things in that basket and they're there the next day. That's something that's worth celebrating. And we, a lot of times, again, we go back to like, no news is good news, but with parenting, that's not really true. Like we need to be giving our kids feedback all the time when they're doing it right. right at a really high ratio. I think you say five to one, right? That's not oh, a wow. number. Yeah. Um, it's probably based on science. No one knows, <laughs> but we have to look for those things and make a plan. And I know that even for myself as a mom, sometimes I just have to step out of the situation and get feedback from someone else. So as a speech pathologist, I'm able to kind of help parents see that. And they're like, that totally makes sense. Like, of course. And so then it just gives them the confidence to try it and keep going and tweak it rather than throwing it out if it doesn't work right It might be, I could imagine like when they come to you for the children collective that they, you know, you're trying to tell them certain things and they're probably already doing it, right? But it's just not consistent. And so you're kind of that reminder of, oh, but, you know, just to bring it to the forefront, because as moms, we have like a million and one things. And so then they're probably telling you that makes sense. And then you're like, cool, are you doing it? And it's like, no. And so then you're able to kind of broaden that awareness and bring it to the forefront, which is awesome. I think it's like the the plan too. like, you know, I think many families and even, you know, teachers and whatnot are quick to think a lot of these kiddos are pretty high functioning in so many areas that it's easy to say, well, they're smart enough or they're capable enough to learn this. We'll just tell them what they need to do and it's going to make sense without kind of thinking we had to take a step back that just because they're capable of doing so many things doesn't mean that these skills are going to come automatic the same way that they might for their peers, that you actually need to show them and teach them step by step that teaching component. So I think having a plan of like, okay, well, how do I teach them to do that? Because if it's inherent in me that I know, okay, well, if I'm forgetting things, I'm going to go and put it near the door, near my keys, whatever I need, I'm going to put a reminder like I'm, I can think of strategies to help myself. But a child is having trouble with executive function isn't going to come up with that on their own, they need to be taught, shown, not just told, right? Yeah, I mean, to go back to like, 
the childhood collective, we, you know, our goal was really to do parent education and training and do that through online courses. And one of that, because again, like in treatment or working with kids, we're teaching the same things and telling parents the same things about ADHD and giving them the same like parenting, positive parenting strategies. And all of this is again, backed in science. Like this is all research-based information. So we really give parents a lot of consistent information, but we wanted to like package that up because we can impact way more families. If we're seeing a person one or a family one-on-one, we're teaching them the same stuff. Why can't we just package that and share that information with so many more families to impact them? Um, So I think that's where we saw such a need for parents to have that the behavioral interventions that we know are really effective for ADHD. Parents weren't able to have access to it. There are very few providers that offer it. And we really wanted them to have that information, have it in an accessible way. And it's our course, I feel like that we have is so unique because we have Katie's perspective from speech pathology with all of her information about executive functioning. And Mallory has all this information about emotion coaching, a lot of components that we don't necessarily get in just kind of strict behavioral interventions that is so important for parents to understand and help in preventing problems from happening. I think that is important in the sense that As parents, we don't get a crash course in any type of training. And especially when, and we see the need for our services because, you know, there's an IEP meeting or the process is starting, or maybe they've had an IEP meeting for five years and they, you know, don't really, you know, understand the intricacies of what it is that can be provided. And Amanda and I are constantly learning about the different ways. And I'm just going to have to pick Katie's brain later about all the executive functioning stuff. So that could be its own episode on another day. But I think that as I've gotten more ADHD cases over the years, in particular this last year, and just trying to educate myself, oh my goodness, it's like just there's so much. And you may see some patterns in some kiddos or I'll I'll tell parents, you know, have you ever, you know, told you know, your son to like go upstairs, get his backpack, come down, take the trash out. And he gets upstairs and he's just like, what am I supposed to do? Right? Like, where am I? Like, I do that, right? Like my phone is, I have reminders that are constantly going off because I can't, you know? Yeah. And I think that when you start to frame it that way and you give the parents the confidence in those trainings, it probably just that stress, the expectations, it kind of starts to melt away, right? Because at least you can get a a game plan going with your own kiddos. And I kind of want to talk about some of the tips and tricks that you have for parents with kiddos that either have ADHD and then suffer from anxiety or have anxiety. What are some of the things I know that you guys had mentioned the blog post that you had just done and I thought I wrote it down, but you had just just had one on school school refusal. That's what it was. Yeah. You know, I just have seen a lot of kids over the last couple years. And again, a lot of those are litigious cases. You probably see a lot of that where the kids are not attending school and should they be on an IEP and really kind of seeing a need for the team and parents to understand the why behind school refusal, because often what we see is kids are just being defiant or trying to stay home and get extra screen. Mm -hmm. And it's rarely that's the primary reason for it. So, you know, we just had a blog post out talking about like, you know, 80% of kids 
with school refusal have separation anxiety. And so if you don't, Interesting. Under, if you don't understand that, and I would say every case that I've had has severe separation anxiety. And if you don't understand that, you're not treating the main issue that is going on. Um, So those cases are anxiety, but what ends up happening is when we're anxious, our bodies go into fight or flight, right? And so for kids, it's often defiance and fighting. And so as parents and school staff, we're like, this is just an oppositionally defiant kid. They're fighting, they're ripping the office to shreds, they're running away. And we don't recognize that as anxiety, but that's how anxiety presents a lot in our kids. And I would bet more often than not in those cases, when you ask the child, you know, why are you doing this? Or why are you, why do you not want to go to school? Most of the time they say, I don't know. And that's seen as even more defiance or it's seen as, oh, well, you just don't want to, but like they don't have the communication skills often. Even adults don't have the communication skills to always express how they're feeling. Sometimes we don't know. We don't know how to express it. You know, I do evaluations and I get, I'm fortunate to have 10 hours working with a kid one-on-one to develop that rapport and I know the questions to ask and I know how to ask it and you know and I know what how to dig deeper into those interviews to get past the I don't know because a lot of kids really don't know you know if but you'll see those signs and symptoms and if you know what to look for with separation anxiety you know you'll know like well is your child following you around at home are they letting you go to the bathroom alone are they at checking on you constantly are they not separating from you um, so there are a lot of things again if we know that's a huge component to school refusal we have to treat that otherwise our kids are not going to be successful that's fascinating and then throw in a unique need right and you don't ever get to that level of separation anxiety, which is fascinating to me simply because the only exposure that I've had to separation anxiety is some of the mommy blogs and my pediatrician being like, okay, at like eight months, like, you know, you might experience separation anxiety and you just, you know, talk to a kid and it's just like, oh, okay. And then, you know, flash forward 10 years from now, I'm not going to remember anything that happened in the first freaking year of her life (laughs) other than what's on my phone, right? All the videos and pictures. But, you know, you're not thinking, oh, geez, is this separation anxiety? You know, you think they get over that at eight months or whatnot. And that's not true. And it becomes a, a diagnosis. Again, it's typical. We typically see that in preschool and even kindergarten our kids having a hard time separating but as they get older sometimes that doesn't go away interesting our anxious kids that can be very hard for them their parent is a safety person and when we're anxious we avoid you know that's what we do if any of you have had anxiety you avoid the situations that make you anxious that's what we do and that Mm -hmm. makes anxiety so much worse and so a situation where kids stays home from school and says they're not feeling well and a lot of times they aren't feeling well right anxiety has a physical component you'll be throwing up sometimes or have stomach aches or headaches and that can be really hard to know is my child actually physically ill Should, or are they anxious and the more they stay home the worse that anxiety gets Lori, what are some of the questions that a parent could ask if that is like the scenario or Mallory or Katie? Like, what are some of the like tips for parents if that is something that's happening just to help them determine whether or not it's a real sickness or it could be something else or giving them a clue to something? 
I think this all comes back to having a really good parent-child communication foundation laid, having a relationship with your child where they know they can come to you and talk to you about things that are concerning them. If something is going on at school, if they aren't feeling well, Mm -hmm. creating a safe space where they can share those kind of things and they're not going to get in trouble. So some of it does really come on the prevention side of making sure that you have the kind of relationship with your child where they feel comfortable coming to you Mm -hmm. with their struggles and challenges um, without fear of punishment or criticism. So again, some of that comes really on the prevention side, having that relationship, providing the space to have those conversations. Some parents don't even think about, you know, we asked, oh, did you ask them how they're feeling? And sometimes parents say, well, no, not really. Like, I didn't really talk that much about it. So just offering the space for your child to bring those kind of things to the table. Sometimes with families, we set in place a five to 10 minute daily check-in time where your child can bring anything to the table that they want to talk about their day. It's just like kind of their brain dump time. Parents aren't coming to it with any agenda. It's just the time for their child to talk about whatever they want to talk about, just this positive one-on-one time with their parents. So offering just providing the space for your child to bring up those kind of concerns is really important. When I'm interviewing kids, I'll do kind of like a worry scale and I'll talk about what worry is and I'll say, I love to quantify things. So I'll be like on a zero to 10 scale with zero being you're totally calm and 10 being like you're super scared, frightened, anxious. Where were you today when we dropped you off at school? And it's nice because it gives parents an idea of where they are and how anxious just their feeling because sometimes it is hard for kids to express that or to even quantify it. So when they're like, why was that an 11? (laughs) You know, you know, that was a really tense situation. And you can do that with sadness, scales, um, those types of things to get a a sense of where your kids are at. We do that in treatment too. Like when I'm treating kids, like I want to check in with them and know like, is that rating going down, (laughs) you know, on a regular basis? Is it going up? So that helps us too to kind of quantify it a little bit. I think from a language perspective too, if you're thinking of just some strategies that you might use at home, if you're going to use a worry scale or the brain dump, just modeling that behavior too and being able to express like, gosh, you know, I was going to go to get milk from the grocery store, but I we're running late and I'm actually like a seven. I'm feeling really stressed out. And then bringing it back a few minutes later and checking back, oh, now I'm calmer. You know, we figured out something else for dinner. I'm a two. And parents always give me funny looks when I talk about that, especially with emotions and problem more for problem solving and inferencing from the speech and language side they're like oh well no I just do that in my head and it's like right that's a problem right, right. for right. some kids they need to see and hear right. and experience that with you and then that's very normal to feel to be at 11 on the right. scale and then to find some strategies to calm back down and we like to when it comes to anxiety I like to have kids name it like it's something outside of them and it, a lot of times mm-hmm. it's easier to talk about when it's not me. Yep. You know, otherwise they sort of get defensive or it's hard to talk about. So with my daughter, she gets anxious a lot. We have a lot of anxiety in our family. Um, She has a hard time separating from me at school. And so we'll talk about her worry bully and her worry bully. She named it her worry bully and her worry bully will tell her like that she shouldn't play with those other kids. Otherwise they're going to make fun of her. And a lot of times it like it helps them to talk about it outside of themselves and gives them some control over that to talk back to it. So we like to give it a name sometimes that's help that helps them to talk about it. 
I absolutely love that. I can completely identify with being at an 11. This feels like it's been 10 years of election. So Mm -hmm. I completely identify with that. But just even recognizing myself, if I tell you, you know, I ask you, how are you guys doing today? You know, and it's just like, oh, fine. Great. You know, maybe not great. But we have a plethora of emotions to choose from, right? It's not just fine. Okay. You know, there's a lot there. But we just don't, even though that's so common of a phrase of just asking, you know, I think even the other day I had asked a client, I was like, how how you feeling? And I was like, I don't even know why I asked that. I was like, I know exactly how you're feeling. You know, we're getting prepared for this IEP meeting. You're anxious, you know. But just that modeling, I think, is so, so important for children because we, again, when they're little, you know, you're speaking to them, you're enunciating, you're reading all the time, right? You're modeling what language should look like. So why wouldn't that follow that, you know, you have to model how you you are presenting yourself, you know, how you are at work, what worries you. And I know as parents, you don't, you feel like you're putting that on the child, but I don't think that is correct if you're just kind of talking about yourself and then saying, well, mommy's feeling really anxious right now. What can I do? Will you breathe with me? Let's, you know, inhale and then, you know, exhale. And and this podcast I was listening to had said, and just from our own podcast with different people, you know, the mindfulness aspect of things can start very, very early. You don't have to wait until, you know, they're 15 years old to understand inhale, exhale. Like you could just do it, you know, when they're even younger, like four or five, you know, maybe even younger. I don't know. But (laughs) I think that's, great like and for you to kind of share your own experiences about your own children I'm sure is just like so to me it's heartwarming you know as a parent to hear that you know to normalize it because again we're not alone in this at all yeah and I try to talk to my daughter about mommy's going to her therapist to talk about her worries and not you know mommy is having worries today about a meeting but I'm gonna do it anyway because I know my worry bully is telling me it's gonna go bad and then after I have the meeting I'll be like oh you know what my worry bully told me it was gonna go bad and it didn't it went great and I'm glad I learned that so we talk about that a lot and try and model it so you know she gets in the habit of seeing that Oh my God. That's absolutely amazing. I love that so much. So where can parents find you? I know that you had mentioned you're in the Scottsdale area, but you have a website. How can people reach you? Okay. So we're, we do have a website. Yeah. It's thechildhoodcollective.com. And that's actually where the blogs are. And we have a ton of blogs. So depending on your child, like what's going on, whether you're looking for support with IEP versus 504, ADHD, auditory processing disorder, we kind of, over the last year, we've been building that up. And we also are always looking for questions. So if people have something they're looking for and it's not on the blog, please shoot us an email. Our email is hello at the child childhoodcollective.com. That's also, you can find that on the website, but probably the easiest place that you would see us daily is over on Instagram or Facebook. So we're over there posting and Mallory actually does most of the posting on our Instagram. She has tons of mindfulness, tons of activities with even like little, little guys doing um, visual imaging and progressive muscle relaxation, but it's all like squeezing lemons yeah. and birthday cake breaths. So it's really child friendly and mm-hmm. stories talking about our own kids and our own mindfulness breathing this week. And so we'd be happy to, to have you join us there. Absolutely. And again, we're, we're pretty active in our DMs and people ask us lots of questions. And so we love to connect with family. And we also in the last month just launched our first online course, Creating Calm, oh. which is a parenting course for kids with ADHD, ADHD, 
ages four to 11. So a lot of the things that we're talking about, about increasing connection, interactions, executive functioning, all of these things is inclu are included in our course. So if you go to our website, it's the childhoodcollective.com forward slash yes is how you can find out more information about the course. But that is available now and will continue to be available if parents need that. So I love that. I mean, I, one thing, you know, that this pandemic has, has created is the opportunity to really present as much as we can on a digital format, which you may not have thought of, you know, at the beginning of this year, right? Helps more access for more families, which is so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you ladies so much for coming on to our podcast and just sharing your knowledge and your own personal experiences. And thank you just for creating the Childhood Collective. I think it's such an amazing idea. And, you know, you saw the need and you were like, we can do this. And then just having all your different perspectives and the passion that you have uh, about it, it just, it warms my heart. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yes. All right, listeners, that's it for this week. Take care of yourselves. Remember to breathe. I think that's pretty much take it. Take a deep breath. Yeah, take do a, deep breath. a meditation, whatever. Work, go for a run, whatever it is that helps you decompress. Go do it. Absolutely. All right, take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.